Today being the eighth day of the lunar cycle, the Buddhist holy day. So it's our custom to come together to chant, to discuss Dhamma, listen to Dhamma, to meditate together. those who are <clears throat> sincere and committed to the practice maybe it's not necessary to listen to a lot of Dhamma we're learning to teach ourselves to internalize what we've read and heard for newcomers maybe we need to hear some Dhamma more often to remind us about the way of practice. In the time of <coughs> the early forest monks, Ajahn Sao, Ajahn Man, just occasionally would bring the monks together to talk Dhamma and then send them away again to meditate. And the monks had great respect for the teacher. So they listened intently. So most of Ajahn Man's teachings, the only ones we have are what were written down by bhikkhus who had heard them. Yeah, there were no tape recorders in those days. If we're really sincere in practice, then we take the Dhamma that we've heard, contemplate it, try to follow it and apply it in our daily practice. And this is the beginning of the practice, developing wisdom. We, we hear the Dhamma or read it. And this supports the arising of wisdom, helps us to reason, use our intelligence to consider what we've heard, come to understand it more for ourselves internally. This gives rise to samaditi, a right view. If we don't open our minds to hear the Dhamma, then even though we still have ears, it's a bit like we're deaf. The words come in, but we don't really take them to heart, consider them or use them, use the wisdom that is shared with us by our teachers and from the Buddha. But if we listen with mindfulness and consider that which we're taught, then we're no longer deaf. It's like our ears are working properly so we can 
benefit from the teachings. It's interesting that in the Eightfold Noble Path, the right view, Samaditi comes first. It's difficult for the other aspects of the path to be developed if we don't hear the Dhamma and think about it sometimes. Very easy to go astray. But also we don't just sit back on the knowledge that we've heard before. That's those instructions we've received and Dhamma that we've heard, we have to really take it and make it ours, internalize it through the practice and develop all those other factors of the path together. As Lumpur Panyawada used to say, we can't transcend suffering until all the path factors are developed. You compare them to like blocks of stone that you use to make a bridge to cross a stream. You won't be able to cross the stream until the last block is in place and you can walk across. It's like the Eightfold Path, we can't transcend suffering reach the end of suffering, reach Nibbāna, until all the factors are developed. So we use the Dhamma that gives rise to some understanding to guide our practice. But we have to train every day in reflecting on the Dhamma, learning un to understand what is wholesome Dhamma and what is unwholesome Dhamma for ourselves, to recognize it in our own behavior, in our own mental behavior, our own physical, verbal behavior. That takes some time, takes some effort. As Yajin Chah used to say, one who watches over their mind or guards their mind will free themselves from Mara's trap. So the wisdom we gain from the Dhamma teachings we hear, then we have to use that and apply it with mindfulness, clear comprehension, heedfulness. We really have to take care with our minds, look after them, learn about them, what is what. When doubt arises and we say, well, who, who's doing that? Who's the one that looks after the mind? Can the mind look after itself? Really, we just need to get down to the practice. Those sort of questions, we, they answer themselves through the practice. In the beginning, we just develop our heedfulness and this quality of watching over the mind, watching over our practice, just in our external behavior. You have to develop awareness of what we're saying, what we're doing, 
He'll use the Vinaya as a, a support, use Sila as a support for the arising of Samadhi. Sila Paripavato, Samadhi Mahapalo, Hoti Mahani Sangso. Sila is the foundation. With that, we get the benefit of Samadhi. We have to put effort into composing, quietening down our speech, our actions enough so that we can be aware of what we're saying, what we're doing. We have to have a, some boundaries, some limits on. That's what the Vinaya provides us. As we compose our speech, our actions become more calm from the outside, then it allows us to be more mindful and more aware, more alert inwardly. But as we do that, well, then we have to rely on great patience and effort as well. So we still have our old conditioning, our old habits that bring we bring with us to the practice. So the mind is periodically seeking to stray outside the boundaries of Dhamma Vinaya, follow its more exuberant outgoings, which sometimes lead to trouble, we need to maybe getting caught up in moods of happiness and suffering based on our behavior. So one of the skills we have to learn in the beginning of training is how to just live in the Vinaya, be comfortable with the Vinaya, to accept it as a training, as training guidelines. And to keep training, to keep restraining the most extreme kinds of behavior we might have had previously. Composing the mind, composing the body, composing speech. Little by little bringing the mind, sort of taming it, bringing it more under our control through more composed speech and actions. We keep doing that with enough patience, enough effort, well gradually it has its effect as you keep the precepts and the Vinaya, then gradually the mind quietens down. Sometimes it's a bit wild, it breaks, breaks loose in our behavior. So then we have to learn how to bring it back again, back to the Dhamma, back to the Vinaya. So we use both effort, mindfulness and wisdom, learning to reflect on behavior and what we're doing, what we're up to, learning how to understand cause and result. If we have a lot of agitation, restlessness in the mind, a lot of agitation, we want to look back and see where it maybe is coming from. We have to learn how to live in a community, just to be skillful in living with other bhikkhus, relating to other people. We don't have to worry too much about the basic necessities of life these days. We have plenty of food, we have accommodation, we have clothing, 
medicines for when we're sick. Even then we still have to work hard not to get too obsessed with these things, learn how to be content. It's another source of suffering in the beginning of practice, isn't it? We seeking things that we haven't got or discontent with the things we've got already. Always looking for better, for more. We have to learn how to counter that habit that we bring with the, us from the lay life where we have more freedom to follow desire. We just learn to accept what we've got, which is plenty, we're not struggling. We don't always need the best of things as long as we've got enough to get by with. Learning contentment with the requisites, learning contentment with other people around us. We can't control the world enough to always make people exactly the way we want them, the characters, their behavior. Just to learn the good principles of how to live peacefully, coexist peacefully with other members of Sangha or people who come to the monastery. This is all part of our sila, part of our training. And as you keep developing that, then the mind is becoming firmer in its application of Dhamma and Vinaya. The result of that, that firmness, the mind starts to settle down. When we meditate, it's easier to concentrate because we're already training mindfulness through our sila. It's an ongoing thing. It's not like we just learn to chant the Patimoko, learn the Vinaya, learn the Sila, memorize it, and that's it, we've done it, we moved on to the next thing. It's an ongoing practice. Learning to use it as a vehicle or a tool to understand our own behavior better, to recognize if we're suffering in some way where is it coming from maybe there's maybe only need to make a small adjustment in how we relate to other people how we our attitudes towards the requisites towards the the place and so on maybe we just have to make some small change and the mind becomes more peaceful but we have to keep learning it's not a, one, a thing you do once and that's the end of it. You keep learning through the sila how to train in right livelihood, right speech, right action. It's all developing right effort, the effort to bring up wholesome intentions and abandon unwholesome intentions. Only we can do that for ourselves. Samawayama, right effort. It's a very personal thing. You can hear Dhamma and people can encourage you to do the right thing, but you have to just learn it for yourself in the end. We have to let, have be sharp enough, clear enough to see our own mind, to know if it's wholesome, and the wholesome Dhamma has arisen to know that, if it's an unwholesome Dhamma has arisen to know that, and to know what to do next. Much of our practice of sila leading into samadhi is indriya samwara, sense restraint, learning to pay attention to establish mindfulness with different kinds of sense contact. So we learn 
develop an evenness of mindfulness. As Ajahn Chah always used to say, evenness of mindfulness doesn't mean evenly timed postures of exactly the same amount of time, sort of three hours sitting, three hours walking, three hours lying down. Evenness of mindfulness means evenness of effort to establish mindfulness in each posture at each time through our day and night. He once gave the example, evenness of mindfulness is say you're sitting and you see a cat. You know that's a cat. You get up, you're standing up, you see the cat, you still know it's a cat. You walk away, as you're walking, you still know it's a cat. You go and lie down and you can see that cat, you still know it's a cat. Very simple example, just keeping the mind evenly aware, knowing what is going on, what it's in, in contact with. Indriya Sangwara, we're learning to practice that, have enough awareness to pay attention to the sense contact and obviously to try to deal with dunha that is arising, to prevent it arising or if it's arising to abandon it as quickly as possible, to recognize it. You hear a sound whether it's a pleasant sound or an unpleasant sound, the sound is just a sound hitting the ear, the vibrations, the sense contact, the nervous system stimulated and so on. And that's all. Then what we make out of it, the perception and then the, what we create out of it, the thinking, the proliferation and the mood of interest or aversion that might arise and that's all when craving takes over the mind so we're learning just to be skillful with that with sense contact in our daily life particularly looking and hearing two kinds of senses that we're using all the time it's one thing to see a sight but then what do we think next to be able to actually watch and catch that process at work, sense contact, Vedana arising leading on to Dunha, the liking and disliking, the same old things and we see a form that is interesting, likable to us, to observe the craving forming around that sight, that sense impression be able to just bring the mind back to the middle, back to equanimity quickly rather than indulging. Or a form of something we don't like, a person or a situation where we're, which we find unpleasant seeing that or hearing that. Be able to cut off that reaction of aversion and all the proliferation that comes from it. That's a, a good habit we can train in, establishing right effort, right mindfulness. Over and over again, it becomes better. We become better at it through, through practice. So the mind is, gets more used to returning to equanimity, balance. Even when there's extreme pleasure, pleasant sense contact or unpleasant sense contact, 
not just falling into it, indulging into it, but just bringing the mind back to just knowing and then letting go. Then the mind doesn't carry around a lot and can go away. Later on, it's not left a big impression on the mind. When there's not much Indriya Sangra, well, what happens is we tend to pick up impressions, we store them, memorize them, and then later on, they trouble us again. So we see a pleasant form. We keep thinking about it, remembering it. We hear a pleasant sound. It keeps going around our mind over and over again. Or unpleasant, unpleasant people or situations, things we don't like. We hold on to them in our mind. It can even lead us on to... These different forms of craving lead on to action as well, seeking out more of the pleasure and the pleasurable sense objects, reacting to the unpleasant, maybe trying to get back at, seek revenge against a person if there's some perceived unpleasantness about them. All of this fed, fed by craving, and we're learning to watch that, understand that, and abandon it, actually free the mind from craving in just in daily life through Indriya Sangwara. It's something we hear time and time again, but there's never a, a dull moment in Dhamma practice because sense contact is taking place all the time. We're breathing, we're alive all the time, so there's always something to practice with. We can always be practicing restraint in our sila, practicing right effort, abandoning unwholesome mental states, developing the wholesome, establishing mindfulness of form, feelings, mind, mind objects. There's always more to do. Even when we do fall into periods of dullness, especially when we're on, on retreat, when we're having a lot of seclusion time on our own, there will be times when we become a bit dull or bored or lonely. But if we can just establish mindfulness, even that we can learn from those experiences by being mindful of the boredom or the dullness or the loneliness or the tiredness. Everything can become food for establishing mindfulness and then contemplating. This is not me, not myself. When we do practice more, bring up more mindfulness, establish it, and it starts to calm the mind, and develop more samadhi, and that firmness becomes established. Whenever that's there, then there's that sense of the mind that is free from its normal kind of ego reacting, reacting to everything. That's where our real peace comes from, where the mind is both calm but also being able to see an Icha Dukkha Anatta in experience, not identifying with everything, not taking it so seriously, not taking it personally whether it's the egolessness of sati or 
state of serenity when the mind has let go of the hindrances or through clear insight seeing something as impermanent, an impermanent condition of mind or impermanent form, physical form brings the mind to this sense of emptiness of self without ego, without self that's peace when you experience that it's peaceful the mind doesn't have to react or think a lot it remains calm and steady and balanced whatever the sense impression whatever the experience the more of that we experience the happier we become all the other aspects of the path fall into place because we can see clearly how they support the arising of that clarity and that peace of mind so doubt drops away doubt drops away and then there's more energy in the, to put into the practice if we're not doubting then we're willing to commit to the practice even if it's difficult sometimes because we have physical pain have mental doubt different kinds of suffering anguish anxiety and so on if we've seen some results then we're willing to keep committing to the same practice refining it going deeper willing to put in time to practice willing to put in the effort in the end if we keep practicing with right view and developing right view and using that to underlie our practice of sila samadhi panya then really you just have to keep going and results will come and we all <clears throat> want results we all want to experience insight we all want to experience the serenity states of tranquility and so on if we just keep going and practice in the correct way keeping the vinaya reflecting on the dhamma on the teachings we've heard and then internalizing them then sooner or later results will come if you just keep practicing if you don't stop you don't give up if wisdom is keep, continues to guide the practice then even the most pleasant aspects of the practice aren't beguiling or they don't trick us or delude us and we all hear the teachings how not to attach to samadhi not to attach to the bliss not to attach to the emotional states that arise when we practice when satire faith arises when we have thoughts of boundless compassion and so on on and on often we do have states of pity and sukha arise and the tendency is to grasp at them and seek them and hold on to them and want more of them if we keep training in right view then the mind is developing the more refined awareness understanding even these things are not self even these things are conditions of mind that arise pass away And although we do experience them in the course of the practice they don't lead us astray lead us to get over attached over excited by them and they don't trick us either I think we've attained something and don't need to do anything else 
Right. As I said, there's never a dull moment in the practice where the practice is going really with a lot of difficulty and not very peaceful, not very energetic, or whether we're experiencing more refined, blissful states. And the same reflections can apply. We can bring up the same insights. That this is not me, myself, mine. We can learn about these experiences. We also have to learn how to balance, balance our practice. We all hear about how the Buddhist teachings are, you know, we learn to help others, we help ourselves by helping ourselves, we help others by helping others, we help ourselves. We know the simile of the acrobats working together. If we look after ourselves and we'll look after the other people around us. We don't tell the other people to look after us and we start with ourselves first, work out outwards. We still have to learn a balance, especially nowadays, the media age, the modern age, it's so tempting to spend most of our time helping others. A lot of pressure from the world, with the world and its problems, lay people have all their problems and their interest in Dharma and they want to do things, they want projects and books and monasteries built and courses taught and so on. But you also have to remember there's not much you can do for others if you're not helping yourself. If you teach others, you have to teach yourself. You can only tell others what you really know for yourself. It's very easy to get burnt out helping others if we don't help ourselves first. So we have to learn that balance, how much time and energy to devote to our own practice, how much to devote to others. We can't always compare with other people either. Some people are very energetic in helping others. Some are very energetic in their own practice. We have to learn the right balance for ourselves. We can only look at other people a little bit. We have to really learn for ourselves what works. You have to be willing to take time as well. Sometimes it takes time to develop the practice to the point where we can do a lot to help others. Take it slowly. Maybe in the beginning we can't yet. We don't feel very confident to help others. Well, it doesn't matter. These things happen by themselves. Similarly with our own practice, we can't just take on too much can't be too idealistic often we have the ideal I should be in a cave on my own just meditating or I should be off in the jungle on my own in a kuti somewhere just meditating not getting involved with anybody or anything we go to one extreme there but you have to remember the Buddha simile of the elephant in the jungle and the elephant and the tiger, the elephant finds a nice forest pool. The elephant, being a big animal, it's a hot day, he wants, goes into the water to have a nice refreshing bath because it's a big animal, it can stand on the bottom of the pool 
splash the water around, enjoy itself. The tiger comes by and says, oh, that looks good, it's a hot day, I'd like a refreshing bath. So when the elephant's gone, it goes down to try it. But if it's going to put its feet on the ground, it's, it bounds into the water. But to put its feet on the ground, its head would be underwater, it'd just drown. All it can do is try and splash around and tread water, but not very happy. So it scrambles out and runs off. With our meditation, we have to get these different aspects of the path in place first before the mind is really ready, prepared for entering deep samadhi or going into seclusion, cutting off other people and so on. It's not that we can never do it, we can sometimes, but if we just do it through idealism, maybe we end up like the tiger, just splashing around, not doing much good for ourselves or anyone. If we haven't got a balanced approach to practice, haven't got right view and haven't established good sila, a good understanding of how to practice, living with other people, living with the requisites, developing contentment and so on, if you rush off into seclusion, usually the imbalance will surface. It's not really that the seclusion creates the problem, it's just it helps the problem, helps you to see, or it's what brings the problem out. The imbalance was already there. If we haven't learned the, the basic skills of a samana, you know, living peacefully with other people, contentment with the requisites, and you rush off into the cave and you just have a miserable time mind is all over the place. So it's important to understand the right balance in practice, how much to give to oneself, how much to give to others. Be able to reflect back on the strength of our sila, how firm is our sila, how well established is right view. How well are we able to reflect on the Dhamma and use what the teachings we've heard to teach ourselves. Can we recognize kilesas? Can we let go of kilesas when they arise? These are the kind of skills we have to keep training in. So sometimes we have to just have a conversation with ourselves. If no one else is doing it for us, we have to do it for ourselves. Say, oh, is this the right thing to do? Is this the right way of thinking? Is this the right way of acting, speaking? What are the results? What's going on in my mind? What's going on in the practice? If something's bad, then you have to tell yourself, oh, this is bad, get rid of it, dump it. If something's good and you know it's good, you say, oh, I should do that, do more of it. We have to learn how to bring up effort in the practice and reflect with wisdom like that. And Jen Chai used to say, I have to learn how to have a Dhamma conversation with ourselves learn what is what, and then act appropriately using the teachings we've gained, actually apply them in daily life. So I've shared a few reflections with you tonight, and we can uh, do some chanting before we finish. <coughs> 